Thank you so much for, for coming in today. Um, <clears throat> we have a, a great lineup for you all today. Uh, my name is Isabel Ixo. I'm Director of International Policy with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, with some interesting and rather polarizing dynamics in play, I'm pleased to invite our panel here to explore the future of these global relationships and importance of trade writ large. Uh, but first, allow me to set the stage for you all on where we've been recently and where we are now. It's safe to say that global trade flows and relationships have been put through the ringer these past few years. With the previous administration often prior prioritizing unilateral trade actions, relationships with allies were at all-time lows. To a large extent, the Trump administration's approach turned traditional meanings of trade policy completely on their heads. In many respects, he thought protectionism would help the U.S. economy when his predecessors said rules-based trade would. As a side effect, we, be, we began to see a blend of economics and national security with new and exceedingly blurred boundaries. Then, the COVID-19 pandemic erupted and changed global relationships forever. All of a sudden, we saw countries rushing to build up stockpiles of critical goods and roll out scores of export restrictions on agriculture and other products. While exemptions were ultimately granted for humanitarian aid necessary for pandemic relief, we saw the trade community turn to some of the only tools they knew many of which had severe unintended consequences, causing global actors to rethink how to respond to future crises. The times of perceived shortages, tensions, and turning inwards were officially upon us in ways we never knew, or at least hadn't known for some time. Enter President Biden, who pledged from the beginning to revamp relationships with key allies and use trade to emphasize equity, inclusion, equity and inclusion, especially for U.S. workers. We began hearing about this concept of friendshoring as officials in Biden's cabinet elevated the need to work with allies on areas of critical dependency while also finding ways to rely less on foreign adversaries for such inputs. This is the idea of manufacturing or sourcing from countries with shared values. Over the past two years, we, we saw new initiatives created with allies in North America, Europe, and elsewhere on areas like critical minerals and more. But at the same time, we've also seen more restrictive approaches to supply chain resiliency including some tools that discriminate against foreign goods and markets, often hamstringing those from our closest allies. As a brief aside, there's a great deal of interest in fostering supply chain resiliency today. But what does that actually mean? I'm hoping some of our panelists today will explore this idea, but in my view, it's helpful to understand what it doesn't mean. Resilience isn't achieved by onshoring all production. On the contrary, trade can make us more resilient, Depending on a single country for critical goods is risky no matter where you stand. The key is that companies can and should diversify their sources of inputs across geographies. It's common to blame global supply chains and trade for shortages of key goods, but the facts simply tell a different story. Back to my storytelling. Global cooperation was never more essential than when Putin invaded Ukraine just over a year ago. The U.S., in lockstep with allies in Europe, Southeast Asia, and North America, implemented a sweeping network of, of sanctions that would simply not have worked without such high levels of coordination with partners. But despite the COVID-19 pandemic, Russia's war in Ukraine, and some of these other dynamics that formed as a result, globalization is far from dead. The U.S. had record exports to over 70 countries last year and record imports from 90 nations. Additionally, trade in goods between the U.S. and China climbed to a new record last year. Trade is essential to the success of U.S. manufacturers. American exports of manu manufactured goods surpassed $1.13 trillion in 2021, a sum representing nearly half the sector's total input. 
In other words, nearly half of everything made in American factories is destined for co consumers overseas. So in short, we have two contradicting paradigms. We have the forces of opening outwards toward global trade via, uh, sorry, the forces of opening outwards via global trade cooperation, countered by the poles of turning inward with domestic subsidy polity and protectionism. How can we find ways to restore global trade principles while striking the right balance of other policies in this space? Today's conversation will explore these exciting and ever-evolving dynamics. With that, allow me, to first, or allow me to introduce our first panelist, Sabine Vian. Sabine is the European Commission's Director General for Trade. Vian, who has been in this role since 2019, served as Deputy Chief Nego Negotiator on the EU side for the negotiations with the UK po post-Brexit. She joined the Commission in 1994, where she worked on industry and trade issues before serving in the cabinets of Trade Commissioner Pascal Lamy, Commission President Barroso, and heading the private office of Developed Commissioner Louis Michel. Sabrine, thanks for joining us today. Do you care to make a few introductory remarks? Thank you very much uh, for having me, and I'm really happy to be here. Although I've learned that I'm doing South by all wrong, um, I've come here, I've done one meeting after the other, and not really had time to just walk around and absorb the atmosphere, everything. But I'm very happy to be here and to discuss uh, trade issues with not the usual Washington uh, bubble. Uh, so I think that is already a very interesting change for me and I'm looking forward to the discussion and I hope we will have time to also engage uh, with the audience. Well, you've set the scene very well or very badly, depending on how you look at it, but I think quite accurately. And I would like to just focus my initial remarks on three points. I think the first point I would like to make is that not every disruption is the same. Uh, you have mentioned quite a few of them. Um, and not all disruptions require the same policy response. Let's take the pandemic. I think the pandemic started off by creating an unseen, unexpected uh, explosion of demand for protective equipment, uh, medical products, then later vaccines and everything that is required to make vaccines. So we had an explosion of demand for which the system was simply not equipped in the beginning. Um, but then, actually, the pandemic has shown the resilience of the system because global supply chains were re-established relatively quickly and OECD studies show that global supply chains were actually more resilient than shorter, more regional ones. So from that point of view, the pandemic was an experience, yes, a disruption, but also that uh, uh, markets can uh, uh, basically correct these developments themselves. Now, of course, we then had the experience of different parts of the world going into lockdowns at different moments, and that then disrupted the supply again. And we've seen that notably with the zero COVID policy of, of China, uh, which had a major impact on global manufacturing. But again, once these disruptions uh, were removed, you could see that trade was gradually returning uh, to normal. That is quite a different disruption than um, the one that we saw uh, with uh, Russia's invasion, full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. War is quite a different challenge than a pandemic. Um, and uh, this is again different from the global competition and increasing confrontation that we are seeing between the US and China. So the disruptions are different and they also require different policy responses. I think the pandemic has shown that you need to have diversified, versatile, dynamic supply chains which can adjust. 
Um, Russia led to a, an abrupt and massive decoupling. And I think that's the only case where I would really use the term decoupling. Because here we were forced to react massively, immediately, in order to deprive Russia of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the means to wage war uh, gradually. It is the, the sanctions are working, but they have a high cost uh, also for the, the countries that impose the sanctions, and in particular, obviously, for the EU, because we are sitting right next. But then you have China, and there the challenge is also manifold, and we have to distinguish. There are issues where, and that's what we've learned from the Russian war, we have seen that where we have dependencies, like Europe has had uh, in energy on Russia, you can see that these dependencies can become weaponized. Yeah? Um, and we don't want to find ourselves in a situation where others could weaponize dependencies. And we have these with respect to China for critical raw materials. So we need to do something about it. But I would call that de-risking, not decoupling. Because actually, this concerns a very small part of trade between the EU and China, and also a very small part of trade between uh, China and the US. Uh, so I don't think that decoupling is the, is, uh, is the solution. Decoupling from an economy of 1.4 billion people has enormous costs, and they are simply not necessary. But there is another element, and that is security. Because China is uh, running a, a civil military fusion policy. So we need to be aware that there are exports of technology that could end up feeding the military prowess of China. Do we want that? So again, I think here we have to de-risk also from an economic security perspective. The second point I wanted to make is how much fragmentation of the world economy can we actually uh, uh, afford? You already referred to the contradictory tendencies we have. If you look at the data, I mean, there's a lot of talk about friend-shoring, onshoring, reshoring. Um, there are also policy measures underpinning that, the Inflation Reduction Act, the increasing use of Bioamerica, but protectionist measures around the world uh, have been up. Um, but trade has still been holding up quite well. Actually, last year saw the highest ever, the, the all-time high in trade between the EU and the US, between the uh, US and China. So I think we are not yet seeing all this rhetoric about decoupling or deglobalization reflected uh, in, in actual reality. But I think words have consequences and policy measures have consequences. So the writing is in the wall. And I think the moment to act against this fragmentation is now. And that's what we need to do. Because, and I think here a lot of people uh, here in South uh, uh, by who are from the tech sector, and there was a recent IMF study that showed that fragmentation in global tech basically can lead to losses of five percentage points of GDP in a variety of countries. For some, it can even go up to 12%. That is enormous. So fragmentation has a cost, and we hear too little about that cost of fragmentation. Now, the problem with that fragmentation is not only an economic one in terms of loss of GDP, but it also makes the transition to the green uh, economy and the digital transformation a lot more expensive. If you have countries that close in on themselves, that say, I only buy what is made in my own country, then obviously you deprive yourselves of more efficiently produced uh, technologies and goods and services that are provided by other countries. So you lose the efficiency, and actually you also lose resiliency if you're more dependent 
even on just a domestic source. You want to not put all your eggs in one basket. You have to distribute your eggs around the world if you want to have both efficiency and resiliency. And then, of course, global fra the fragmentation in economic terms also has a political cost. Um, because we need to work together in this world, whether we like it or not, in order to deal with what is a civilizational challenge, climate change, biodiversity loss. These are all uh, challenges that require global cooperation. And I think it's naive to believe that you can close in on yourself economically and still be able to enlist other partners' cooperation uh, in addressing these global challenges. Um, and you've referred to friendshoring, onshoring. I think it's a very bad idea. It doesn't work, because if I look at what we need for the green transition, the critical raw materials, the technologies, nobody has, no country, however big, has all this in its own, within its own borders. Uh, so we are dependent on global cooperation. Um, so first thing is, it doesn't work. Secondly, it sends a very bad message to the rest of the world, especially to what we call the global south or the global swing states, the ones which we need uh, to work with. And this idea, the West against the rest, it just doesn't work. Look at how much we struggle in the UN to have the condemnation every time of Russia uh, and its invasion. So I really think that we have to be aware of the fact that we need other uh, countries uh, to work with us. And the third point is trade po uh, policy. And I think, unfortunately, one has to say that more and more, especially in the United States, trade policy is part of the solution. It's not the problem. And we need to work together. And I think we actually need to have a stronger and better transatlantic cooperation as well in order to make that happen. Now, what does that mean? Very briefly, the WTO needs to continue to provide the guardrails against arbitrary discrimination. The World Trade Organization, which its basic rules of non-discrimination, national treatment, is the only thing that stands between you, your company, uh, and arbitrary discrimination just because of where you come from, where your products are made, and where they come from. So we need that. I leave it to Alan to develop that more. I, I rely on him uh, doing this much better than, than I do. But just to underline the importance, the EU is still doing more than 50% of its trade on the basis of WTO rules, although we have the biggest network of bilateral trade agreements. For the US, I think the figure is even higher, 60%. So we cannot afford that people turn their back on the WTO. And even the US, which for many purposes has turned its back on the WTO, cannot afford that others do the same because they currently still rely on other countries respecting their basic obligations. This being said, we also need to continue to have trade agreements. Uh, we are not of the view that has been expressed by, uh, uh, by the USTR that the time for free trade agreements is over. Uh, if you look at Europe, there's a dynamism in what we are doing uh, in Latin America, in the Indo-Pacific. The US is also doing things, but they are doing IPEF, but that doesn't offer market access. Um, and I think we also need to have new forms of cooperation, um, whether that is the Trade and Technology Council that we've set up with the US in order to look at the issues at the intersection between trade, uh, security, and technology, uh, whether that is uh, working on, uh, on digital trade rules, uh, where we have to do some work in the WTO, not with all 164, but with quite a few 
in a, in a plurilateral setting, but also bilaterally. So we need to have more forms of engagement. We have to be a little bit more creative, uh, but it is evident that we cannot uh, tackle any of the challenges we are faced with, whether economically, politically, or environmentally on our own. We need more global cooperation. Absolutely, well, thank you so much for those great remarks, and we'll, we'll get to a lot of those issues um, later on. But um, next we have Alan Wolf. Wolf is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, DC. Um, until joining PIIE, he was uh, Deputy Director General at the World Trade Organization. Um, his current research focuses on developing WTO reform, responding to the role of the US, EU, and China in the international trading system, and serving the needs of all countries and using trade to achieve economic prosperity. Um, Alan, I'll turn it to you now to make some brief remarks. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to be with you. Uh, it's the first time I've been to this conference. Uh, you go downstairs to the exhibition hall. It's amazing uh, for uh, the enthusiasm of startups that uh, rely on a world that will be open, non-discriminatory, transparent, so they know what the rules are. And those rules are set, as Sabina Lyons has said, uh, globally uh, in the context of the World Trade Organization. And I say in the context of it, because if you go to Geneva, you see a nice building, uh, a nice headquarters, and uh, you would think that um, decisions are being made there. And who are, the, who are making those decisions? The 164 members of the WTO and 24 observers sit in. So that's pretty much all of world trade, minus just a few outliers. Uh, and a uh, lovely view of Mont Blanc on a clear day, uh, highest peak in uh, Europe. Uh, and you rely upon something going on in that building that preserves the system. And it's a struggle. It's 164 countries with very diverse economies. Uh, you go to um, Africa, and uh, in West Africa, you have four of the poorest countries, uh, Benin, uh, Mali, Chad, uh, Burkina Faso, uh, dependent on cotton. And uh, you know, will, will, what's the world market going to be like in cotton? Will major countries subsidize cotton so that they really don't get everything out of that in terms of income that they need? Well, this panel is about um, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as it turns out, uh, which is a brilliant uh, idea for a panel, uh, uh, because it's very relevant. It uh, is how is the system responding to the challenges that are represented by the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Something I. I have not thought of in terms of uh, the apocalypse, but uh, it's sort of apocalypse now. The um, pestilence. Uh, it turned out uh, that uh, when China first had uh, COVID-19, uh, it needed ventilators, and there weren't enough in China. And they scoured the world. This was January of 2020 for ventilators. And then the disease moved across to Europe and then the United States and no one had enough ventilators. And uh, if you look at uh, the production of ventilators, it turned out that uh, at the maximum, it's uh, 2,000 parts uh, from hundreds of suppliers around the world. No one could produce a lot of ventilators quickly. You couldn't just sort of start up a ventilator factory. You had to, you had to uh, yes, you could invest, but first you needed trade. We didn't have enough personal protective equipment. If you, you remember pictures 
of uh, people in our hospitals uh, uh, who were uh, trying to stay safe and wearing trash bags for personal protective equipment. There wasn't enough of it. it. It's something you could gear up for in a few months, but not overnight. Trade was essential to meeting the problems of uh, uh, the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And it responded uh, with a lot of innovation that was from many countries. There was a vaccine, or several vaccines, actually. And it turned out you needed uh, the way to uh, inject the vaccine. You needed, you needed other things other than just the vaccine itself. Uh, and uh, India produced a lot of the hypodermic needles that were needed, and they put on export controls. Uh, so it mattered what the rules are. Now, the rule within the WTO is that uh, this, is, this goes back to 1948, to the predecessor of the WTO. The multilateral trading system's rule is you have an equitable, you have an equitable share of uh, product if you put on an export restriction, an equitable share has to be allowed for the rest of the world. That was not really honored, as we know, initially. A number of countries put on export controls. So we need better rules. Uh, and the rules have to be improved by an agreement of the 164 countries, not an easy challenge. So with respect to uh, pestilence, uh, it is a major threat. There's, the scientists say, we will have other pandemics. And it may not be that you need ventilators for the next one. You may need something else. And we don't know what that something else is. But we'll need trade to be responsive. And it was, but not because the world's trading system rules were set up for a rapid response. Uh, then if you look at uh, famine, uh, there is famine in the world. Uh, there, it can be uh, when there's a war that closes the um, Black Sea, and the Black Sea has been an issue for a very long time. The ancient Greeks in the fifth century BC, uh, Athens sent up troops into the north of the Black Sea to make sure that the grain could flow south because they needed it. And uh, the, the Romans relied at the time on Egypt to supply grain as well as the Black Sea uh, countries. Uh, trade was always essential. You cannot. The, the world is not self-sufficient in agriculture in every location. It, it, you have to move uh, food from countries of surplus to countries of deficit. And uh, the, there is no restriction on, uh, there is no prohibition on export restrictions on food. Uh, and in this last uh, ministerial meeting, when the countries came together, the ministers met uh, last year, they said, well, uh, we'll all promise to be pretty open with respect to exports after we take care of ourselves, which was uh, exports to the World Food Program that buys uh, uh, food and distributes it to the poorest countries. Um, so uh, more needs to be done. The rules have to be adjusted with respect to uh, pestilence. Uh, war. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, trade with Russia didn't halt the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the, the fact is the World Trading System's rules aren't going to prevent one country from attacking another. What the, but the system was set up in 1948 because uh, the world was devastated. 
uh, was devastated by uh, World War II, every place, and uh, along came the European Union eventually, but the European common market and then the European communities, and it was designed to make peace more likely and more sustainable, more durable, and the EU is a peace project. Uh, as it expanded, it was to bring peace to the east of Europe as well as to the, to the Franco-German border. Um, and uh, what, what's the relevance today? Uh, there's a trade for peace program at the WTO that is for conflict-affected countries because most conflicts are internal to an intra-country. They are inside a country. Uh, so Somalia, uh, Sudan, South Sudan, Ethiopia, there are quite a number of countries that are seeking to get into the WTO. And why do they want to do that? To raise the standard of living of their people so that they have a chance at less conflict. They have a chance to establish peace stability. And if you read, there was an international trade organization charter back in, in the 40s. Uh, an organization didn't come into being. Uh, but what it said was, we're building a world based on greater stability because of trade uh, that will raise the standard of living. Now, then we have the fourth horseman, death. Um, plenty of excess deaths. CDC, the, the uh, Center for Disease Control, says that defines excess deaths by looking at a normal period. Uh, and uh, in the US glo and globally, there have been for COVID-19 6.87 million excess deaths uh, attributable to COVID. Well, when the, the people who set up the world trading system, the multilateral trading system in 1948, uh, looked around, there actually had been 200, billion, 200 million, not billion, 200 million um, excess deaths from World War I, World War II, displaced people, disease, the, the Spanish flu, 1918, uh, 200 million excess deaths. The trading system has to be responsive to that problem of excess deaths. And how does it do it? Moving food to take care of famine, moving uh, uh, medicines, vaccines, uh, personal protective equipment to meet the challenge of, um, of uh, pandemics. Uh, and uh, uh, helping to prevent the conflict-affected countries from si slipping back further into conflict at home. So uh, the trading system has a lot of challenges, and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse actually happen to summarize what those challenges are. Uh, and we need cooperation of those 164 countries to move forward to be responsive to those challenges. Thank you. Terrific, thanks. Um, now we're moving on to Anna Schneider. Um, Anna is Senior Vice President of Industry Government Relations at Volkswagen Group America. Uh, she is responsible for the development of the company's legislative and public affairs priorities and leads all advocacy efforts at the federal and state levels. Um, prior to Volkswagen, Anna held similar leadership roles at Toyota and Mitsubishi. Uh, Anna, over to you. So I'm gonna take a much more narrow, selfish approach. <laughs> and look at trade and automotive. Uh, surprise. Uh, so I, I, I firmly believe that the future of trade, as we see it today, is very uncertain. There are bright spots, but there's also some, I have some great concerns. 
Um, I believe the rules-based trading system is being severely strained. Mm. Um, as I said, there are bright spots. Right now, uh, U.S. trade officials are in Bali for the latest round of negotiations on the Indo-Pacific economic framework. But notice it's a framework. It's not a free trade agreement. And then, of course, on Friday, there was much joy in Automotiveville when the White House announced that President Biden and President van der Leyen had a, come to an agreement on critical minerals exports between uh, the EU and the US. Uh, mind you, these are targeted critical minerals, but it will allow European exports to be counted toward requirements for clean vehicles, and now I'm gonna get wonky, on section 30D of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is very important for a company whose future is electric. So I really believe that this is the right step in terms of stronger transatlantic relations. It's also the right step for sustainable mobility. Look, the Inflation Reduction Act fails to acknowledge that the U.S. has neither the critical minerals or the mining capacity for any manufacturer to meet any of the requirements under the agreement. So if consumers were to, are going to receive any sort of purchase credit toward buying an electric vehicle, uh, we're going to need to rapidly expand critical mineral production here, refining capacity here, and if we can include EU minerals and mining and refining, it will greatly expand the ability for US consumers to purchase electric vehicles. So I'm really thrilled at this potential for cooperation. There's a lot of details that have to be worked out, of course, but you know, it, it does recognize that there are substantial opportunities on both sides of the Atlantic to build out strong, resilient supply chains, which we all know are critically important to our success. We saw supply chain disruption over the last two and a half years of incredible proportions and yet we muddle through. So this is this agreement, I'm calling it FTA light. Okay, very light. Um, but you know, for, I mentioned a company like Volkswagen that's committing $7.1 billion between now and 2027 to build battery electric vehicles in North America. We need these sorts of baby steps. I mean, we committed to the Biden administration that 50% of our sales would be electric vehicles in 2030. It's gonna be really hard to do that if electric vehicles continue to be too expensive or not attainable for the average consumer. Our former CEO would refer to us as, we build electric vehicles for the millions, not the millionaires. <laughs> so, I mean, this, is, this agreement is a step, I would say, in the right direction. Um, again, fortifies transatlantic trade, critically important. Um, but I recognize I'm digressing on one topic, so um, any kind of limited free trade agreement, I think, is, is a good thing. But there's also storm clouds, and I'll use the example of USMCA, which is the US-Mexican-Canada Free Trade Agreement. So there has been a dispute settlement panel that reached a decision in January. Canada and Mexico filed a dispute against the US interpretation of how to calculate regional value content. Here's a free trade agreement that many of us in Washington spent two and a half years of our lives following, understanding, working with the USTR trade negotiators, 
And then what did we have to do in order to meet these requirements under this free trade agreement? We had to localize a lot of production. And two and a half years ago, it wasn't called friendshoring or reshoring. It was called localization. And it was necessary for us to maintain duty-free treatment between Canada and Mexico. Uh, and at very high levels, the USMCA requires that the regional value content for automotive production be 75% North American content. It's the highest of any free trade agreement in the world, 75%. How to do that? You localize a lot of production in the US. So great for the US, $2.9 billion more for us alone. Imagine other companies. But for again, for a volume brand, Duty-free treatment is critical. So, I mean, this agreement, this agreement which, you know, I think we understood what the intent of the negotiators were, and we followed the plain text of the agreement, and then after the agreement was signed, implementing guidelines came out that completely did not follow the agreement. Canada noticed it, those of us who were negotiating, uh, noticed it, Mexico noticed it. Mexico and Canada filed a dispute settlement panel. The US helped create the panel that would ultimately decide who was right. It was a five to zero judgment against the US. That was in January. In February, USTR was supposed to implement the agreement. It's March, nothing. So if the US isn't gonna follow the rules, how does that set an example for any other country? And why would any other country want to enter into a free, to tra free trade agreement with the US? So I sincerely hope that the US doesn't walk away from the USMCA. The North American market is critically important to us. Uh, we are looking to double our, our um, market share in North America. We're investing more in the US. As I said, we localize parts and production. We've expanded our plant to build battery electric vehicles. We have plans to vertically integrate our battery supply chain. And so these agreements, you know, we can't be competitive if we're paying 6.1% tariffs to export our ID4 into Canada. So I would say we're in a little bit of trouble right now. Mm -hmm. I hope the US stands up and follows the agreement as negotiated. And I hope there's future free trade agreements because there's a way around it. Mexico has 45 free trade agreements. We could build in Mexico, export to Canada duty-free. Europe has a free trade agreement with Canada. We could take the ID4 that's built in Europe and send it to Canada. That doesn't help jobs. That doesn't help investment. So the automotive perspective is I'm a little concerned. There are bright spots, but I'm hopeful that the future we will continue to uphold our commitments and free trade will continue to be important to our growth and prosperity in this country. Great, thank you so much everyone and for those introductory comments that um, ultimately will we'll lead into a, a Q&A portion now that will dig deeper on a lot of these topics. And um, Sabine, I think it makes sense to start with you. How have these global and domestic trade stressors impacted the transatlantic relationship in particular? And how do we ensure there's a race to the top and not a subsidies race to the bottom? Um, and then following up on that, just so you can be thinking about this, uh, the U.S. and the EU are working together on semiconductors, forced labor, uh, renewable energy, and critical minerals, to name a few. But where else should they cooperate in the supply chain? Mm -hmm. okay. 
Well, I can seamlessly continue from Anna um, because I think also in terms of the EU-US trade relationship, uh, it's a mixed bag. Um, I mean, we've seen with the start of the Biden administration a sort of a honeymoon in transatlantic relations. I mean, there was this commitment of the Biden administration to work with allies. We got off to a very good start by at least parking, if not solving, um, trade disputes that had bothered us for a long time. You may all be familiar with the disputes about the subsidies that each side gave to uh, Airbus Boeing, uh, respectively. Um, we had uh, the problems with the Trump 232 tariffs, um, which uh, 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 affected steel and aluminium, um, and where then we took countermeasures. So we found a partial solution to that as well, and a commitment to sort it out by October this year. Um, so we also had an excellent uh, uh, cooperation unfortunately uh, necessary because of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I think we really pulled together there, including coordinating export control actions and sanctions. Um, but then we, had, uh, we also see that there is still very much an America first uh, policy uh, uh, being pursued by the Biden administration. We see that with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which uh, is, a, is a problem and which flies in the face of the, the working with the allies. Um, so it's, it's really, a, a, then we see more and more recourse to Buy America policy, up to a point where before um, the instructions that were passed on to the state level were always, this has to be in full respect of the very limited international commitments that the US has taken in the WTO on government procurement. But now we see that this is no longer the instruction, so, and that even uh, in, in handling the processes, um, these very few international commitments that the US has get ignored. So it is very challenging. At the same time, given where we are geopolitically, and given that the transatlantic relationship is the central artery of the world economy, we cannot afford to let this just deteriorate. So from that point of view, I think it was the responsible thing, what the two presidents did uh, last Friday, uh, where we said, okay, we have our problems with the IRA. We will not get the legislation changed. There's simply no majority uh, uh, to do this. So we will have to see that we make it work and that we will reduce the discriminatory impact on the EU. And that is what we've done uh, uh, with these uh, um, with these agreements on an FTA-type treatment, uh, we also managed to get access uh, to uh, the market for leased vehicles uh, without discrimination. But let's also be clear, the agreement of last Friday does not solve all the problems, which is the reason why the second leg of this agreement is important. We have agreed to set up a uh, clean tech um, incentives dialogue which serves as a coordination forum to make sure that the way both sides subsidize, and let's make no mistake, I mean, the green transition will not happen with some form of subsidization on both sides, and the EU is also putting up a lot of money, uh, but that we do this in a way that we do not make it easy for companies to play us off one against the other and to get to the subsidies race, and we see that. And here we have actually some experience with the semiconductors 
uh, where both sides have their chips act, and we have seen that companies, you know, obviously they look at this and they say, okay, what do I get in the US? Then I go back to Germany or France or whoever in the EU and say, can you match that? You know, and then the countries match it, and then they go back to the US and say, can you top it up a bit? So that is an endless game, uh, and we have to break that. And I think we managed to do that with the semiconductors dialogue. So that is a positive example, but we now have to do that across the whole range of clean tech uh, uh, sectors. But we also need to work together more. Um, and I think here, the privileged forum is the Trade and Technology Council, which we set up uh, with the beginning of the Biden administration. So I think that was a positive step. It's been working well on the tech side, less well on the trade side. Um, but here we really have to look at how can we create a reliable um, transatlantic green marketplace. So how can we work to reduce barriers in cooperation where we absolutely need that also for being able to finance the green transition? Um, and I'm thinking here about cooperation on wind energy. We have a lot of complementary strengths that we should build on. And the US is looking to really expand wind power generation onshore and offshore. The EU has a lot to offer uh, in, in terms of technology. Uh, but at the moment, uh, that is not yet really happening. And we, again, we, we are uh, uh, concerned about Buy America provisions. Or take solar. Um, both the US and the EU are dependent on China for a lot of the solar supply chain. That is not a sustainable solution. Again, it's not about decoupling, but it's about making sure that you're not just dependent on one supplier. And still, and we are working on solar in the, in the TTC, and still the US has safeguard measures against the EU uh, uh, solar uh, production. That just doesn't make sense. And these are the issues we need to work through so there's a lot of potential, but the picture is a very mixed one at this stage, and we have to make it work. We are, on the other hand, to, to conclude on a positive point, I mean, we are happy to see that the US now finally has a climate policy. That is something we've been asking for for a very long time, so that is on the positive side. And if we work together, then I think we can really facilitate the rollout of all these technologies. And here we are taking now an initiative in the Trade and Technology Council, which will meet at the end of May in Sweden uh, for the fourth time. Um, we are looking at an initiative on sustainable trade, um, and I think that has the potential of really moving things forward. We also need to move on uh, digital trade facilitation, because there's a lot of unexploited potentials, and there's far too much energy uh, and money wasted on getting products recertified that have already been tested on one side of the Atlantic. So there is an enormous potential to facilitate trade in, in that direction. So a lot to be done. Great, thank you. Just back briefly to this idea of um, friendshoring and reshoring and, and predictability mm -hmm. writ large here. Businesses need predictability and, and consistency when it comes to commerce now more than ever. Um, do, do any of you have comments on the sort of shortfalls? I know you mentioned some of the shortfalls, friendshoring and whatnot, um, but on, on the shortfalls and or benefits of reshoring and friendshoring, and these can be general as well as how they're working in practice, but perhaps we can start with Anna. So I'm beginning to believe that friendshoring and reshoring is just code for buy American. 
You know, it's, you know, we make, when we select a supplier, it's an over year long process, you know, and competitiveness and price certainly come into play. Um, but I think sometimes we feel, well, we have limited choice if we want, as I mentioned under USMCA, we have very limited choice. If we want to maintain duty-free treatment, we did a lot of reshoring to the US, which is great for the US, great for jobs, great for investment. Um, but sometimes I feel that the US is using this French shoring to draw, well, let's be honest, I mean, you're gonna say it later, the elephant in the room is China. It's to direct supply chains away from China and to our friends, and who our friends could change with each administration, I'm afraid. But you know, right now we're we're very happy that friendshoring includes the EU, especially as a German company. But that that again, I think, will have benefits uh, across the Atlantic and benefits beyond trade and investment, but will help the global climate as well. Um, but this this telling us who our friends are and where we can source our supply is, is very, very challenging. Somebody mentioned, I think you mentioned the Section 232 tariffs on against uh, imported European steel. Well, surprise, <laughs> we use European steel, but we have, we've made the pledge and we're well on our way to sourcing 70% of our steel from the US. But there's still specialty steel that we use because we are a global car manufacturer. Um, and the ID4 that's built in Europe in Salzgitter is similar, uh, identical, excuse me, to the one built in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So we'd like to use the same steel, but it's under the 232 uh, restrictions. Well, guess what? We spent the last three years filling out reams of documentation and forms to get exemptions, and we got them because that type of steel, this highly elastic, interstitial-free, it gets really technical steel, is not made in the US. So we go through a lot of paperwork, a lot of uh, defense of our production, and the impact it would have if we didn't have the steel, what it would mean for us, our ability to build the cars, and it's not made in the US. So I just feel there's so many hurdles and barriers that are thrown at us that just don't need to be there if we would just, you know, look at competition and and you know expanding free trade agreements rather than having these, you know, technology councils or you know, frameworks or whatever. Let's open up markets and let's do what's best for the consumer. Because if we can choose to source our products um, in a way that keeps the product competitive, it means more people could buy it. That means we can build more of them. That means more jobs. That means we're going to invest more. Great. It's a wonderful cycle. Alan, do you want to yeah, just real quick? You know, the reason I'm optimistic, and this hasn't been an optimistic panel so far, also, to any great extent. The reason I'm optimistic is, uh, really what Anna has been saying is that uh, trade takes place because you have a willing buyer and a willing seller. And you want governments to get out of the way, which is smooth the, the process. Uh, and ultimately, that's what's going to uh, be the end story. It was the reason that the multilateral trading system was founded after World War II. It is that 
uh, it started with actually Churchill and um, Roosevelt uh, met at Argentia Bay in 1941, before the U.S. was even in the war, for post-war aims with the U.S. not a combatant. And the post-war aims was equal access to supplies, which is what we're talking about now with uh, uh, the um, uh, looking around the world for uh, rare earths and that sort of thing, and equal access to markets. And we're going to come back to that because it makes economic sense. Because the, the young people downstairs who are, have startups, they want to be able to sell any place around the world without intervention of governments to prevent them from doing so. And they, if they have a platform that they need, that's, and there are actually, it's not just Americans down there. It's, uh, there, are, there are lots of folks from the EU, from the member states, and there are uh, uh, others from around the world. Uh, they have something to, to offer. And efficiency is, 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 is going to be more sustainable. Uh, so it won't be just efficiency. And it won't be forced labor. There will be some regulation of that sort of thing. But markets are going to be more open eventually. Now, friendshoring, and uh, the US said with respect to the uh, national security, for national security reasons, we have to put on restrictions on imports from Canada of aluminum and steel. Really? Mm. We need, actually, uh, Canada has a lot of hydropower. <coughs> And it's a good place to make aluminum, which sucks up a lot of electricity to make aluminum ingot. That's where our aluminum, 70% of aluminum comes, comes from Canada in, in the ingot form. Uh, so, uh, you know, national security, all the, the ideas of intervention, friendshoring. Uh, cobalt is very heavily in the Demo Democratic Republic of the Congo. Is that one of our closest friends? Not when I last looked. But it probably was getting friendlier all the time. When we needed uh, oil, uh, suddenly Venezuela became a little bit more of a friend than it used to be. Uh, Friendshoring is sort of a difficult concept to apply. Uh, what you, what it, it, trade takes place because of need. It takes place because we like certain things. If we, if we want to have uh, uh, fruits and vegetables in the, in the middle of the winter, and uh, they make, there may still be Texas grapefruit coming up, but if you want uh, some other things, you want to go further south. Uh, so uh, trade uh, in the final analysis is unquenchable, the desire for trade. And it is uh, going to tri be triumphant. But w are we going to be through a rough patch? Yeah. And as Sabina said, uh, you know, there has been no decoupling with the US and China. There had been selective sanctions, but the overall numbers are way up uh, from before COVID and from even last year, up from last year. Um, will there be more difficulties if uh, China uh, sends lethal aid to um, uh, Russia? Uh, then there'll be, uh, there'll be a change in position in, uh, I suspect, Brussels and certainly in Washington, that we can't deal with you people the way we've been dealing with you in China if you're going to intervene on behalf of Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. So we'll be, have a rough patch here and there, but uh, trade ultimately will prevail. Great. Uh, thank, you. thank you. 
And I mean, does anybody want to tease out these kind of China comments? I don't know if Anna, that's what your thought was on. If not, we can turn to China more broadly after that. But go now, ahead. it was still on the friendshoring piece because um, it it appears that friendshoring is is splitting the world into eastern and western blocks. And Sabina pointed out something interesting where she said um, global GDP would drop by, did you say, five percent with emerging economies shouldering most of the cost if we start to create a truly bipolar system. Um, so I really think that restricting trade to those that are our allies is going to cause increased tensions with those that are not our allies. And I think that's something, particularly in the current climate, we truly want to avoid. So. I just I thought that was a point to emphasize what the impact on global GDP was if we go back to this almost cold war cold war existence. Great. Well, thank you. Well, look, we're we're running a little bit low on time here and we did hit China, but we'll come back perhaps if if audience, the audience wants to, but um, Back on uh, market access, we've seen examples um, in which the Biden administration has chosen a sort of new framework to base its trade policy off of, and, and this is one that does not include tariff liberalization from the outset. Um, so uh, accordingly, U.S. trade policy in the past, as Ellen has mentioned and, and others, has used um, market access sort of as a, a, as a carrot in these trade negotiations, uh, but now it's no longer there. So is this the future of trade for the U.S.? Does this work for business? How does this impact trade with the EU? And how should we be thinking about this? The, um, the U.S. has got to come back. Um, President Trump, on the first full day in office, said, Trans-Pacific Partnership, we're out of it. Um, and uh, oddly enough, China said, oh, we can apply. We can be in this. Uh, you can't run away from uh, the table because others will take your place. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the world, uh, Sabina said, you know, the world of digital commerce can fragment. The, the reason it's, it's expanded at such a rapid rate, e-commerce, is in part because governments haven't caught up yet with regulating it, but they're working on it. And when they work on it, it'll be different regimes in different countries unless we get ahead of it. And the U.S. national interest is to be at that table. And if someone else starts it, which has happened in the WTO with actually middle-level countries, uh, Japan, uh, Singapore, Australia, uh, starting a negotiation, and the U.S. says, oh, we have to be there too. So the U.S. may not lead, but it can't stay out. Uh, and eventually it will, it will come in. Uh, it can be more forward-leaning than it is for sure. That will eventually happen because actually people in business are going to say, we need that. We need that to make a profit and it's good for the country. So I think we get back there, but not quite yet. Great. Any other comments? Okay. Well, um, perhaps one for, for the audience here. I mean, we're, we're at a tech conference, right? And we, we continue to see sort of the increasing prevalence of, of digital trade, especially uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, we've also seen the emergence of, of other sort of proposed measures uh, that threaten to discriminate against U.S. industry and others. Um, does traditional trade policy adequately address concerns of digital and high-tech companies? For example, how can we facilitate um, European and American companies, 
of trade in this space? Um, and more generally, do what do policymakers need to do more of or differently, specifically on digital trade for in the high tech space? Maybe I can uh, pick off where, where Alan uh, ended, and that is we see that there is an increasing regulation of uh, data flows um, and the digital economy in general, and that responds to a demand. The demand also coming from the tech sector to have predictable rules. Now, you mentioned, and I know that this is very often the discussion here, that the way the EU goes about this would discriminate against the US. That is not the case. So if you look at the, we have different models and approaches to regulation. If at, at the risk of oversimplifying, what we have in the EU is a rights-based approach. So what matters most is that those who generate data, they remain in control of that data. In the US, we have a more, traditionally a more business-centered approach, I would say. And then we have China and other countries who have, as authoritarian regimes, a state-centered approach to it, which is basically using data generated by whoever for the purposes of state control. Now, as I said, this is perhaps an oversimplification. And these are issues which have also been under discussion in the Trade and uh, Technology Council um, between the EU and the US. And what we see is, I think the debate in the US is also changing, and there is an appetite for more regulation. On artificial intelligence, for instance, we have agreed on principles, or in the process of agreeing on principles, which I think is important because it, there is a need to regulate these things because they have a huge societal impact. Um, Cybersecurity is an increasing concern, also because we see that today warfare is hybrid and there is cyber warfare. So you have a very clear security angle to this as well. Um, and I think in general on, uh, uh, on these issues, we need to find the right set of rules in order to give confidence to citizens, to companies, to governments, that they know what they can do. Um, so from that point of view, I think that the EU and the US would do well to look at the fact that they have more in common uh, than what separates them. Um, and I think, for instance, the plurilateral negotiations in the WTO on e-commerce, who will have to deal with some of these hard issues of, of data flows, I think they are a good place to come to an understanding of how you can link up different systems of regulation without creating problems. The EU and the US both have agreements with other third countries on digital trade, which show that you can link up different models of regulation without creating problems. And I think that is what we need to focus on. Um, so I hope that we will come to these issues, uh, as I said, both in the WTO, in the plurilateral negotiations, but also in the TTC, in the Trade and Technology Council, what has worked well there is when we start having discussions where both sides are still in an early stage of regulation. So, for instance, we are having interesting discussions on quantum, um, and I think that is something we need to, where we need to develop our thinking. Um, and there I see good prospects uh, to move beyond the headline objectives. I've also noticed that since we have the TTC, these criticisms of European regulation being discriminatory 
have died down quite a lot because we've had a forum where we can say, where do you see the problem concretely and how do we deal with that? So I think that is important that we keep these lines open. Great. Do we have time for one more question or should we? Okay. Um, I just, I'd like to end with sort of the most important geopolitical thread, the, the war in Ukraine. Um, is there an off-ramp in your view? We've seen massive effects on global trade, especially as a result of, of sanctions and others. We've seen an array of sectors impacted from wheat to financial services to energy. What can the US and other NATO allies continue to do in this space, whether it's finding ways to increase domestic oil and gas production or coordinating further in other sectors like export controls on key technologies? How does trade continue to play a role and ultimately where do we go from here? I don't know if someone wants to start with that or... Uh. Well, we, we uh, absolutely need to, um, as Samina said earlier, uh, you can't have uh, excessive dependence on particular sources, and you need you need to have some diversity of sourcing. So, uh, the EU has discovered that with respect to um, uh, fossil fuels from uh, the Soviet Union, uh, it doesn't plan to be vulnerable in that way again. Uh, trade will play a major part in the rebuilding of Ukraine. Uh, and it's, a, it's absolutely essential that uh, uh, Ukraine being the breadbasket of, of the world, 30% of uh, some of the traded grains have to go to North Africa and uh, uh, Turkey and other places. Uh, and it's not just quantities. It's uh, th when there's a price spike from a an interference with supply, the poorest in the world uh, suffer severely, so that uh, the uh, the number of people who are hungry now they can't just can't afford what the staples that they used to have uh, in uh, a number of countries. So trade's going to play a, a curative role. It's not going to um, it's not going to uh, bring the war to a close, uh, uh, other than uh, providing alternatives for energy for uh, the EU and uh, other countries, and um, uh, we're learning how to be, uh, how to make trade more resilient. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, I think the solution is going to be in the first instance military, um, and uh, whether the West has the staying power in terms of the political support of uh, Ukraine. But trade will, tra trade will be uh, part of the solution uh, longer term. Can, may I share a short term? Sure. Trade is a solution. Yeah. Uh, in the Ukraine, uh, we source our wiring harnesses. And when the war broke out, um, you know, the, the factories were empty because every able-bodied man over 18 up to 60 was thrown into military service. And so the factory that we used was taken over by women. And then the bombing got worse and worse, and we used the factory as a bomb shelter. Mm. And we temporarily moved that wiring harness production to Morocco, the only other location that we use in Europe for our vehicles produced in Europe. As soon as the bombing subsided, we got a call, you know, obviously headquarters, not me, uh, that said, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the women wanted to go back to work. Mm. They wanted to earn money. They wanted to support their families. Their husbands were at war. 
So we move production back. We bus them in. They work at night when it's apparently safer. And uh, then we bus, we bus them home and we provide shelter when we can. So that trade flow, that ability to keep working, that ability to support your family and to have some semblance of normalcy in, in a very unusual situation uh, continues to, you know, we, we were able to move trade flows then. And then with Russia, I think we, you know, we have to continue to starve them of the resources to continue to fuel the war. We shuttered, sh shuttered two factories, 8,000 people. We sold it both at pennies on the dollar. Um, we continue to supply the, the safety parts, spare parts for the vehicles that are on the road, but there's no more Volkswagen production in Russia. Thank you for that, that sobering account, but trade is everywhere everyone. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I think that's all the time we have.